out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we always are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for the next 60 plus minutes. As you know, we love to play indie pop from that golden decade, sometimes before and sometimes after. But we also love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the band, the Band of Susans, because I spoke to one of the main members, Robert Poss, to find out more about life, love, poetry and the creative journey. And this is the interview. And after a few minutes of casual chat, as we love to do in this world that is showbiz, we got down to those important questions. The early formative years. Robert, tell us more. You know, I'm, I'm about 10 years older than you, probably. I was born in 1956. So, you know, I had sort of the classic upbringing of experiencing, you know, as a teenager and as a young, actually even earlier than that, experiencing all this stuff as it was happening, meeting the Beatles and the Stones and, you know, psychedelic stuff. And, you know, I, and I had an older sister, you know, who was eight years older and she would like come home from college and say, well, you know, there's this group called Cream and there's, you know, these people in it, you know, there's Eric Clapton or she would say, you know, I just went to a club and I saw this group called the Jefferson Airplane, whatever. So I sort of vicariously, you know, my musical knowledge was was extended by, you know, my two sisters who were older. But I mean, I, from a very early age, you know, you know, from eight or nine, I was starting to buy Beatles records and listen to the Stones and everything. And I got very involved in, in blues, you know, Chicago blues, electric blues. Um, so by the time I was a teenager, you know, in the in the 70s, in the early 70s, I mean, I had I was listening to primarily rock and blues and primarily English, English rock and American rock. And I mean, the funny thing about growing up in that period is that everything was sort of novel. So when you'd hear a wah-wah pedal, you were hearing it for the first time. When someone was using a fuzz box, it was like the first time. So, um, you know, it was this period of incredible innovation. And if you think about the, um, the innovation musically and culturally that happened, let's say, between 1964 and 1969, or even look at 1966 to 1968, I mean, if you just chart the various records, you know, you're going sort of from I Want to Hold Your Hand to Sgt. Peppers, or you're going from, you know, Satisfaction to Street Fighting Man or something. So I was, I became really obsessed with the Stones. And at the time, I, I started playing bass guitar when I was 12. That was my first instrument. And I just learned, you know, playing along to the radio. And then I switched to guitar, more to guitar later. Again, it was all, you know, taught by year. And I was like going to the shopping center and buying like these import French blues records of Ma Rainey and all this other stuff. So, you know, I had a pretty eclectic, um, eclectic uh, childhood and adolescence. But, you know, I did gravitate towards not so much towards pop. It was really rock and blues. Um, and there was obviously tons of pop. And, you know, I listened to Motown. I listened to sort of everything because 
you know, in those days, the radio, um, the sort of mainstream radio was playing all the stuff that was innovative because it was new. Um, so, you know, I think that the key moments of my life in terms of musically was, you know, discovering all that stuff when I was a little kid, like the Beatles and the Stones. And then seeing the music get more and more sort of grandiose and complicated and stodgy. And then sort of in 77, 70, well, actually, the first thing was the New York Dolls. I, I read about the New York Dolls in 73 or 72 before they had a record out. And then I was like the first person in my city, Buffalo, New York, probably to buy their record. And I saw them in a great show. It was it was Aerosmith on their first tour opening for the New York Dolls, who opened for Mott the Hoople. So it was sort of like this classic glitter glam hard rock thing. Wow. That was probably, was, so, it, was it about $5 to see all three? Yeah, I'm sure it was. Yeah, at the most. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, so, you know, sort of like the Dolls was a revelation. And then, of course, in 77, 78, 79, I, I realized that um, this sort of punk and the Sex Pistols and the Clash and all that stuff in Buzzcocks, that was, it brought me back to the feelings I'd had as a young kid about the sort of the immediacy of the Beatles or the Stones, where you just have, it's not a big production number with studio musicians and, you know, orchestras. It was, it was just a couple of guys, you know, or just a bunch of people doing something. And, you know, like a band like X-Ray Specs, you know, who I just thought was the greatest because I just thought, well, these are people just sort of doing exactly what they want to do. There's no one, they're not really fitting into a formula. Um, same thing with, you know, when I first heard The Clash or I first heard The Sex Pistols. The funny thing about The Pistols was I had read about them before I heard them. And I thought they in some big article and they sounded like really like they sounded like just misogynists. They sounded like really, really like like assholes. I mean, I was like, who are these guys? I don't like these guys. They sound like, you know, they're just jerks, you know. And then I finally saw a clip on TV of some club, you know, it was probably some expose of punk, you know, and I heard the music and I was like, no, I love them. This is it. You know? <laughs> so I was, I, I, I sort of like was able to dispense with my, my political and, um, you know, sexual politics, uh, aversion to them. Um, and you know, it was, it was that, you know, incredible. It's so, it so much of it came from the New York dolls and same thing with the Ramones. Yes. Um, and I was, you know, a fanatical Johnny Thunders fan in the 70s. And, you know, I would go see them and I talked with him backstage. And, you know, um, so, you know, I have sort of a musical autobiography of sorts, which which is the liner notes to the Distortion is Truth um, CD. Um, I can send you, you know, a, a clip, but, you know, I'll send you a, a screen capture of that if you're interested in it. But it sort of takes me through my, my childhood into... Um, learning about um, all kinds of different things. The thing is that I had, along with this obsession with certain kinds of rock and certain sort of primitivism and immediacy, I had a dual interest, which was, this was very influenced by Susan Stanger, who's like my girlfriend and my partner in crime at the time. Um, I was very interested in sort of serious music, meaning sort of John Cage and David Tudor and all this stuff that was happening. And I was introduced to all that stuff like Julius Eastman and Christian Wolff and Fred Shevsky and all this other stuff 
And then when I went to college, when I went to university, which was in 74, um, I was introduced to Alvin Lussier and all this other music and also eventually Phil Niblock, who became a very important figure for me, a composer that I've, you know, performed with, recorded with, whatever. Um, so I sort of had one foot in this strange avant-garde so-called serious music and one foot in sort of the most raw sort of punky stuff. And my first real band that had records out was called Tot Rocket. And, you know, we put out three seven inches and then an LP. And so, you know, that was very Clash and Jam influenced. Um, yes. So, you know, it, it's uh, so I sort of went through these different evolutions. But I think I think the most significant thing was it took me a while to find my own voice. I mean, I think that the the stuff I was doing earlier on was was really derivative. Um and um, it was stylistically very similar to some other things. Then it was, I sort of got fed up with the whole thing, you know, after putting out a couple of records and not really getting anywhere. And Band of Susans came out of me just sitting around by myself with a couple of digital delays and thinking, well, what do I like about music? What do I like about guitar? What do I like about doing this? And just basically deciding for myself, well, you know, other people are doing exactly what they want. Why, why don't I just do exactly what I want and not think about style or melody or anything, you know? So yes. I'm rambling. I'm, I understand that I'm rambling. <laughs> no, no, it's interesting. Because going yeah. just slightly back to that 60s period when you were talking about yeah. the blues, was people, yeah. people, were people like Peter Green and the Fleetwood Mac period of that, that couple of years where he was really on it in a way that was yeah good. i mean i was i was aware of that i gravitated more towards like mike bloomfield um it was a you know american guitarist um i did listen to you know eric clapton and i listened to cream i listened to things like the paul butterfield blues band um and i was really i was aware of sort of the anglo the anglo blues thing um and the blues breakers and all that stuff and what john mayo was doing um and that was, you know, it was geared primarily, the, the white blues players were sort of interested in this virtuosic soloing thing. I really also really like stuff like Muddy Waters and Fred McDowell that were, you know, the sort of the people that sort of started all this stuff. And they were really primitive. I mean, like Albert King was sort of my hero and you know, he sort of was the Johnny Thunders of his time. He had like four riffs and that's just all he ever played. But they were so exquisite and they were so great that like and they were always different that it was sort of he was just sort of a, for me, sort of a, a god, I think, in terms of his playing. Yeah. Um, so and, you know, I mean, growing up in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, eventually there became in the U.S. there was something called FM radio, which distinguished it from sort of pop radio, which was on the AM band. And FM radio at the time was sort of they would play album cuts. They would play, you know, a whole side of Bob Dylan or they would play, um, you know, a whole side of yes or something. And the idea was that it was more like a free form radio format. It wasn't geared towards singles. It wasn't, you know, geared towards like top of the pops kind of thing. So we would all sit around and listen to this stuff. And we didn't really, you know, we didn't have John Peel there, but we had some local DJs that would, you know, turn us on to slightly more obscure music. Um, 
certainly more obscure than what was, you know, what was being shown on the television. Yes, well, I think it was John Peel when he was doing his um, 60s show, which was on, I think it was Radio Caroline, he did the Perfume Garden, where he would be playing all these very obscure American bands like Captain Beefheart and Jefferson Airplane and, you know, The Doors and Jimi Hendrix. And I think that was where a lot of that counterculture started to appear during the sort of the 67, 68 period. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, that summer of love. And so the Perfume Garden and that very early work of Mark Boland where he was quite, um, yes, playing, you know, doing some quite extraordinary poetry to music. And, and you know, there was a quite a folk influence in the UK, which I know... Yes, Because you were yeah. talking about... Yeah, well, you didn't mention them, but I was just thinking of Led Zeppelin when you were talking about FM radio and playing albums and, and right, size. Right. But um, people like Robert Plant and even David Bowie, though he was a bit more folk, but Robert Plant, he was really into people like the Incredible String Band. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and so that kind of very kind of eclectic kind of world music folk kind of experimentation... With, with with probably copious amounts of LSD, so um, exactly, <laughs> and you know, people they, people would be you know they would be buying these sort of Indian classical Indian music records, and you know, and the funny thing is that all that stuff. I mean, it's funny how I think of myself as sort of a purist and sort of narrow minded, but in in a sense, I was exposed to all that stuff. I mean, it was folk, there was folk rock, there was country rock, there was southern rock. I mean, you know, I used to listen to the Allman Brothers and learn the guitar solos and. And, you know, there was just so much sort of music being churned out. And, um, you know, people were partisans. I mean, people would, you know, people would decide that one group was better than another or one kind of music was better than another. But it was it was a pretty eclectic period in terms of people. You know, it was about experimentation and um, being introduced to new things. And like I said, I was lucky in that I, I had input from, you know, my elder sister's. Plus, you know, my, my friends and contemporaries. And the other thing is, you know, you would go to the record store and you'd come home with something and, you know, you would you'd look at the cover. Maybe you bought it just because you like the graphics and you'd or the name of the band or something. And you had really hadn't, didn't have a clue what you were going to get. And sometimes you got something really great. Yes. Yes. A Roger Dean cover. We loved the Roger Dean cover. The Yes albums. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but just just before we sort of hit the 80s, but going back to the 60s, were you kind of curious, you know, because you mentioned the Rolling Stones a few times, that period where they had Mick Taylor on guitar rather than... Bob. Yeah, I was, I was a really big fan of Mick Taylor. I mean, I thought he was just a fantastic guitarist. Um, and the thing is, I saw the Stones in 72 um, with Mick Taylor and they were just fantastic. And the funny thing is, I saw them again in '75 with Ron Wood, and I kind of thought, "Oh, these guys are past their prime." And it's I, I I joke about them now because when I talk about the Rolling Stones now, I talk about them as they're one of the top three Rolling Stones tribute bands out there. <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, I just it's just amazing how long they've stuck around. And I was the world's biggest Keith Richard fanatic in like '72. Someone, someone's father brought a copy of some London Times supplement and it had an article about mentioned Keith Richard and talked about how he used five string open tuning. So I ran out and I started doing five string open tuning. And I think I was like the only person just about doing that at the time. And I was, you know, I was a kid, I was a teenager, but I learned, you know, how to play all the Rolling Stones songs and each new Stones record really up through It's Only Rock and Roll or maybe Goat's Head Soup. I, you know, I was really excited about it. It was a big, it was a big deal. Yes. And then, 
So I have a theory about a theory about great bands, which is sort of silly and simplistic, but I'll tell you. I think the, these great bands that we love, you know, the, the archetypes, I think they have a 10-year period of absolute creativity. So I'm talking about the Kinks, the Who, the Stones, the Beatles, you know. So it's like from 64 to 74, or it's from, you know, 62 to 72, or it's from... And in a certain sense, after that 10 years they start either repeating themselves or they just can't maintain that level of innovation or their lyric writing, you know, falls off because they're just too bored. Um, so I tend to prize, I mean, there are exceptions to this. I mean, you know, Mekons have been going forever. I mean, certain <laughs> bands, you know, yes. um, maybe Wire in their reinvention. but The Nightingales? The Nightingales are still going? I'm not really familiar with them. Yeah, Robert Lloyd. Not, yeah, yeah. But I mean, so I have this theory. So I do tend to a certain point treasure that 10-year period, and then I tend, my interest tends to fall off. And I feel like in my own life, I had a 10-year period of sort of peak creativity, let's say, you know, 86 to 96 or something, which was, you know, the, more or less the band of students. And then, of course, I've done solo stuff subsequent to that, and I'm still doing it. But... Um, it's, it's strange, you know, it's one thing to appreciate a band when they're sort of current, and then it's another thing to appreciate a band retrospectively. Um, so, of course, anyone who's, you know, 20 years younger than I am, for instance, is, would be experiencing, might be listening to some of the same music that I listen to, but they're experiencing it not of its time. They're, they're ex experiencing it sort of retrospectively, and... I think that makes a big difference. The other thing is when you're young and you're emotional and romantic, you know, all this stuff means different things to you than when you maybe get older and somewhat more cynical or analytical or something. So yes. there's a lot to be said. And that's why, you know, there's certain groups or let's say there's kids listening to music today. I probably I say to myself, you know, if I was if I was like 17 years old, I would probably love that. But I'm not. I'm approaching it from a you know retrospective and sort of a jaded adult thing. Yes. But uh, you know the music, the soundtrack of our teenage years or our you know early twenties, or for most people remains really really significant. Um, and not everybody wants to indulge in you know keep up with what's happening. But. Yes, well, no, God, it's fascinating. I love your theory on the 10 years, by the way, because I've got one, but it's five years instead. So it's quite, I'll, I'll come back to that in a bit. But it was interesting mm -hmm. about what you were saying about that music that you listen to, if you do, if you're one of those people, and I was, and obviously a lot of people are, where you have that period of, it, you know, music is so there, you know, it consumes you. And it is probably the late teens, early 20s kind mm -hmm. of thing, you know, and that, and that, you can't repeat that because you can't you can't be that age all your life and exactly then, and things exactly. happen I, I remember i suppose one of my my heroes there was two david bowie and lemmy from motorhead um yeah. i mean he mm -hmm. he often just used to say well you know i grew up well both of them when they said what was your main influence they both would say little richard that was it you know then there was right. elvis and and that kind of music that he listened to was which was again like the beatles and lots of those kind of, I suppose, yes, kind of 50s, 60s people. And, and that was that music he consumed, you know, Buddy Holly, all those bands and Eddie Cochran, you know, you, you know, right. and, and 
you know, we kind of listen to it, but it, it's not kind of the same as what they must have been listening to, you know, how they were yeah. listening to it. And I kind of realised, because obviously I, I kind of would love to know what's going on and be excited about the music happening now. And when I try and I listen to Billie Eilish, I listen to Stormzy, right, I just find right, myself right. thinking... David, you're an old dude. You can't, you can't, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, when you were listening to the Smiths 24-7 for five years. Right, exactly. That yeah. was your yeah. soundtrack. But the, my boss at the time, who had been into the 60s scene and seen all those bands and Jimi Hendrix, would just listen and go, oh, that Smiths is rubbish. And it was like, no, yeah. no, it's, you know, it's, it's everything to me. You know, you can't say that, you know, and it's, it's a bit like, and then as you get older and you reflect on this kind of in an honest way, you realise, yeah, but that, that's true, what you just said, you know, you, you can't repeat your 18, 20-year-old in your 40s. But there is one exception, and that was when John Walters, who was the producer of John Peel's show, said, God, if John Peel ever hits puberty, we're in trouble. Because he, he would, <laughs> he would just, yeah. He, yeah. Would, he would maintain that kind of... That I mean, enthusiasm it, and that wonder. At, yeah, at, it was, it was a bit like... No, that was, yes. You know, it was, it was that thing that, you know, he wanted to move on to the next thing all the time, which kind of obviously upset some of his fans who were going, no, but John, stick with... Stick with the Eagles and Jackson Brown. Not right. oh God, he's got the remote. You can't play the Ramones and Damn. That's not proper music. What about Yes? Yeah. You know, it's like well. And then it was hip hop, and people go, oh, you can't play Public Enemy and all that. No, no. And it was like no. And then the Bundu Boys. And so, you know, it is it is an interesting thing because yeah. So it takes us into the eighties because it was kind of in the UK during the early eighties. There was a lot of unemployment and a lot of people you know, signed on, they had that couple of years and, and attitudes were quite different then, whereas being unemployed wasn't such a big thing. Right, yes. You know, a few, mm -hmm. quite a few bands I spoke to, well, said, yeah, we just signed on for a couple of years, did Job Seekers Allowance, Enterprise Allowance, all these little things that the government did to try and get the figures down. Yeah. We, we took drugs, played in the bands and then, and then, yeah, so the five-year narrative I've got is that, you know, after 12 months, they'd make a sound which was quite curious and interesting. It wasn't, you know, Johnny B. Good and John Peel would like, oh, play and then they'd get the John Peel session and that was like wow this is brilliant then the first album things are going well second album a bit tricky because you know there was like things started getting serious in various ways and and often the second album and and any band in the UK that would ever tour America would I'm, I say this 90% of the time would say to me and then we came back and we split up because it just destroyed us and that was kind of and that's and that's generally a lot of the bands that I've been interviewing in the 80s from the 80s period and I've, I've got that very sharp five years you know it was the second interesting the, yeah, the yeah. Third. and the thing that knocked it out without kind of rambling too much is that you know they were sick of each other they made no money by then you know things hadn't turned out and there was a serious lack of money as well you know there was like it was zero money yeah so there was like god this isn't even a career that pays you know and and you know i'm now 22 or 23 and i've now got a relationship i've got you know other things i don't want to live with my mum anymore and and be in a band I, you know and i don't want to live on someone's kind of mattress on the floor in a squat somewhere with junkies around me so that's often what finishes a lot of bands you know finishes them off but then the other thing that i've noticed is that the music scene really changes in about 87, you know, because I, mm -hmm. I put, you know, this is my other theory, indie pop in the UK is very much like between 83 to 87, which are the years of the Smiths, really. You know, there was a certain right. sound. And then after that, you find that a lot of bands give up. And I think it's because ecstasy came in and suddenly the music papers wanted, right. or the press wanted 
you know, they wanted ravey bands. They wanted the Soup yeah. Dragons, the Happy Mondays, the Stone Roses, Primal Scream. You know, it was like, OK, let's get Andy Weatherall. Let's get the remix. Let's take drugs. Let's dance. And, you know, bands like the June Brides, the Wolfhounds, it's a bit like, yeah, not really. And that was kind of that. So you come along, bizarrely, in 86, don't you? You come to the party. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's the thing about there was this this parallel, you know, thing in the UK, which was, you know, really Paul Smith from Blast First was largely responsible because he was bringing over these American bands, obviously, for Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. and Big Black and then Us and the Butthole Surfers. And so there was, you know, this was happening in parallel to sort of the grunge scene in, in, in the U.S., um, and so, yeah, we came along in, in 86 and we, I put out, you know, the record on my own label, my first EP, and then John Peel started playing it. And then, you know, we were desperately looking for someone to put out a, a um, put out our records and we sort of, you know, was in, were introduced sort of to, to Paul Smith and, you know, it was great, but we, we were really sort of, you know, we were older. We weren't like, you know, young kids. We weren't in our early twenties. We were, we were older than that. And we also were, we had no idea that things would really happen. You know, I mean, I, I remember before the John Peel sort of discovered us and we signed, I remember, you know, going to my day job, which was, I was working at a law firm basically as a researcher, a paralegal researcher. And I was on the bus and I opened up the New York times and, you know, there there was an article by Robert Palmer, who was like the top rock critic, and he said, new music from Robert Paulos. And I was like, wait a minute, that's me, you know? <laughs> and um, the funny thing is the day that article ran in the New York Times, I, when I came home, there was a telegram on my door from like, you know, RCA Records or something saying, oh, please send us your, your record or whatever. But... Um, so, you know, we were we were part of that that whole blast first thing, although we were a little different. Um, you know, we had different interests and, and a different sound and whatever. But there was definitely a lot of interest in, in the UK of these American bands, yes. um, in, including Nirvana, but also the, you know, the blast first bands. Um, so, you know, that was very lucky for us um, and that we came over. And, and our, I mean, our first tour in the U.S. was with Wire and Paul introduced us to Wire and we had a great tour with them and became very good friends with them. Um, but so, yeah, so we were part of this sort of minor, minor, you know, thread of, of noisy, sort of grungy, loud guitar bands from the U.S., coming to the UK and, and you know, and playing. Yeah. And that was great. You know, well, it, that was it, great. Well, it's interesting because I, I hadn't appreciated this, but there were these gatekeepers, really quite kind of significant gatekeepers back in that period. And again, yeah. Being an old person, I have no idea how this all works. But back now I look at this kind of, the, you know, you had you had daytime radio and you had the sort of the, the personality radio DJs who, frankly, were more interested in, you know, going to parties and meet, right. meeting young girls, where John Peel was like this kind of serious player. But so I didn't realise because I was, you know, on my own, in a way, listening to John Peel recording on my trusty TDK D90 cassette and playing it for a right. few days because everything is kind of new that he's playing. So you kind of need to digest it 
few times because you can't it doesn't make sense the first time you listen to something when, mm-hmm. it's, when it's all new and it's all over the place but it's kind of fascinating and you know somewhere in there there's some absolute gems that you just got to work yourself through so john peel i didn't really, you know i mean was such an important gatekeeper and then you had the nme and the melody maker and sounds exactly. so the yeah. huge kind of circulations and then within the uk and i can you know just talk about that really is that you know most towns and cities and london obviously have a lot of these kind of small venues kind of scattered around on you know who have got nights on a monday tuesday wednesday like norwich right. had the, the art center and there's you know obviously i could go around the whole country with everybody had their little place from Leicester to Glasgow, Manchester, Leeds, you know, Brighton, you know, so in a way, you know, a John Peel play, like I said, for the, for a lot of the UK bands and a session and that first album would mean that you'd get that phone call for the band and they'd get their little van and they would just randomly drive around the country playing these gigs on a Monday or Tuesday night happily because they're not just playing in front of their friends, family and anybody they can emotionally blackmail to see them. They're playing in front of strangers who went, yeah, I heard John Peel play it. So you can get 200, 300 kids turning up to see these kind of indie bands that we heard that you know in a way is really small compared to people like Duran Duran and Spandau Bally but for them they're like wow we're on stage and people have known our, know our music and and so the gatekeepers are incredibly important and I can see because also from the UK we're as a fan are always excited about something that's obscure from a different different world and America right. obviously anything that came on Blast first instantly you know gets a thumbs up <laughs> you know you're yeah. you know because it's a cool label and you know it doesn't matter if it's Lydia Lunch you know you know or Sonic exactly, Youth or yeah. the Buttholes or the Head of David you know you just got to literally make yourself like it regardless because you just want to be cool don't you <laughs> right you know the scene don't you we all want to do that thing and then you know then they also brought out that the devil's jukebox you know that amazing right, right. seven a collection of seven inch singles which i managed to get a copy of myself and it was like wow all these bands are just amazing before you even heard of them so you you know so coming from america you know, you've, you've kind of got a leg up before you're even touched down in this country because, you know, you tick so many boxes, don't you? No, it really felt that way. I mean, and we were we were new. I mean, the funny thing is the first the first time um, Susan and I came to London, this was before the record was out, we came to do some press. We had drinks with, now try to picture this. It was Lee Scratch Perry. It was Genesis P. Orridge. It was Mal from Cabaret Voltaire, okay? And, and me and Susan and some people from, and Paul Smith. So picture that as, a, <laughs> as an introduction to the UK music scene, okay? I mean, what an eclectic group of people. Um, but yeah, we were swept up in it, and it was great because, you know, I've been used to, I've been putting out records for years. I was used to doing everything myself, press, radio, mailing list, going to the post office. As a matter of fact, when when that first New York Times review came out for uh, the Blessing and Curse EP that I put out, I got a call from some some other, some record label, you know, press person. They said, well, how did you get, how did you get your record, that record review in the New York Times? Like, you know, like, how did you get that place? And I said, well, I put the record in an envelope and I put the address on it and I went to the post office and I mailed it. I mean, I had no connections. I had no press person. I had no, you know, manager. And I, I just did it. And that was 
what was so gratifying, you know, to the response of, you know, our first record was that it was, I was just my weird vision of what I wanted. And I had no expectations that it could be really would be successful or whatever, but people sort of liked it. So, you know, and they kept making all these comparisons to bands I had never listened to, like Noi or what? I mean, I had never really listened to Wire. I I only knew about what I'd never really listened to Pink Flag when everybody else did. Uh, I remember I Am the Fly, and that was about it. So it was so it was so strange when people say, "Oh, you're really influenced by Wire," and I would say, "Well, I've never listened to them. What are they like?" You know? <laughs> so it was really sort of amusing, and it was amusing when I met them because. If before the tour, because it was like I had to go out and buy all the records so I could, you know, understand who they were. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, because you have your the 10-year kind of narrative of creativity and, and a bit like, I suppose, the Smiths, but they had a five-year narrative. They they literally, it was 24-7 until it kind of finished them off and, and released right. an album after album. They, they obviously did nothing else for that period and... That was probably good and good for the fan like me, but bad for their, their mental health. You right. know, you also are in an incredible stream of kind of creativity here because there is no let up between hope against hope until you get to here comes success. I mean, it, you know, and for for the first couple of years, there is an album a year, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, that's that. I think maybe that's what I'm most proud of is that we, you know, we were putting out these records and. We, I felt they were all different. They were all good. And I never felt, I mean, I never felt we got to the point when we were just repeating ourselves or treading water. The paradox is that as we got more successful, it became more difficult because, see, people, you know, New York's a very expensive city to live in. And, you know, we had day jobs and significant others and, you know, you couldn't, and we had rent to pay. And these tours we would do, like we do a 10-week European UK tour and then we do a 10 week US tour you know like we never made any money from those maybe we sold some t-shirts but so of course while you're away you've got to cover your rent and if you have a job you've either got to quit your job or you've got to see if they'll give you you know leave from work which is, usually they don't so as touring became more demanding it was really difficult to get the members of the band. And that's why for a couple of tours, we ended up having sort of substitutes. It was really hard to get people to say, okay, you're going to, you're going to leave your, you know, your wife um, and your job for 10 weeks. You're not going to make any money, <laughs> you know, and, and you're going to have fun and it's going to be great. But, and, you know, that's a lot easier to do when you're 18, but when you're like 29 or 30, it's not so tenable. Um, and so, you know, that was one of the realities because, you know, we got a little tour support and um, from from the U.S. We had a U.S. label. We had the U.K. label, uh, Blast First, and then we had Rough Trade Germany um, in Germany. But it was not a money-making venture. And I was fronting a lot of money myself, just personal savings and stuff. Um, so, but as you say, I mean, we, we were putting out just about a record a year almost. And, you know, it was... It was great. I mean, I was just so immersed in it. It was also heartbreaking on a certain level because, you know, you get very competitive with other bands and you see other things are getting certain advantages you don't get and you get into sort of this weird, you know, bitter and twisted sort of jealousy thing. I mean, it's it's sort of laughable now, but when you're in the middle of it, 
you know, you're thinking, oh, you know, why didn't we go on that tour? Or why didn't we get this concert or this or that? And you get sort of, you know, you get you get sort of not I wouldn't say careerist, but you you know, we were ambitious. We wanted to be heard and seen by as many people as possible. I never thought I would make money. I mean, mm-hmm. I you know, I mean, and I didn't. I mean, you know, li- you know, bits and pieces here and there from royalties and stuff. But I always tell people when they say, well, why do you do this? Like, why do you keep doing music and why did you do music? And I say, well, it's kind of like poets. I mean, there's probably about five poets in the world that are making a living from poetry, right? You know, at any given time, they're teaching at university or they're working in bookstores, but they want to be poets. So they're poets. You know, that's what they want to do. That's their feeling. And and I always felt that way, even though, you know, my music was sold and it was on the radio. I had that kind of approach to it, which is, you know, I'm driven creatively to do this thing. And I have no idea whether it will find an audience or whether it will be successful. And I'm the last person in the world to try to tailor my art to the public because I don't have a clue what people really like. You know what I mean? I'm just, if I had to be a commercial musician, I would be a dismal failure. So, you know, but on the other hand, I felt like a poet, like, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And if I have to, you know, work at a bookstore or whatever, I'll do that, you know? Yes. Well, I always was amazed talking of poets. And one of my favorites, I suppose, was Philip Larkin, who did the Mm -hmm. the Whitson Wedding and, Various other, well, lots actually. But then, you know, when I found out that he worked in a library, and I thought, no, he really yeah. did. He that was it. He did work in a library, but he was yeah, this amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you know, because you have this romantic idea that you're just there in some beautiful, either in Soho, London, or you're in the, you know, right. I don't know, in the countryside I'd, or something. Yeah, Hebrides <laughs> or you know, sort of yeah. Isle of Sky, you know, just kind of conjure right. these. But no, he was librarian, probably dealing with very irritating customers, you know. And you think, oh, okay, yeah. you know, so that was yes. I mean, yeah. the reality is, is always so much different to, um, yes, the fantasy of the kid who's listening to John Peel thinking these bands, you know, and it was interesting you're talking about success and, and sometimes you look back at it, you laugh, but at the time, you know, you are real because I remember the dislike that everyone had for Blondie, you know, out of that CBGBs right. because they obviously hit the payload, didn't they, and went straight to number one, whereas everyone right. else was stuck there still kind of going, oh, we're still living in crappy accommodation and... Yes, we we were the ones who kind of helped instigate it, but Blondie's run off with all the money, I suppose. Though you know, in reality, you know they they still got ripped off. So it's a lose. Yep. It's a kind of win lose situation, really, isn't it? So then, because can you remember much? Because you did John two John Peel sessions. Can yeah. you remember much about those? Because I know you did a the Rolling Stones cover, Child of the Moon, and also Gang of Four. Yeah, I mean that was really we were felt really like you know we thought it was just like the greatest thing to be able to do that. Um, the first one I think was more successful than the second one. I think the second one we were, which was 89, we were a little uh, distracted or something, but yeah, child on the moon was like a song I'd always wanted to record. I just thought it was like a great song and it was really obscure at that point. And the gang of four uh, cover was really fun. Um, yeah, that was for, I mean, for me, that was like going into that studio and, you know, seeing the amps and seeing, thinking about the history of other people that had done Peel sessions and the history of the studio. To me, that was, it was really a, a real high point. Um, and both sessions were, and, you know, you don't have that much time and, you know, 
it's a question of like, you know, what are you going to do? And should you do your own material or should you, should you just do covers or, um, and, you know, it's it, because I had produced the records, you know, all the Amanda Susan's records. This time we were working with, you know, with someone else producing and, um, it was, you know, it was a little nerve wracking because you feel like, well, we're really on the spot. You know, like if, if we if we don't do this right, it's going to be really embarrassing. And I do remember, I think we played a show with um, Rape Man and Dinosaur Jr. I think it was in Chester. And someone gave me, you know, came up to us and gave us a cassette. It was a cassette of the John Peel show where they played the session. And I remember putting that on and hearing, you know, John Peel's voice sort of announcing us and, and that sort of mellifluous, you know, baritone yes. or whatever. Um, and it was like really, I've, you know, I was really proud and really happy about it. So um, th those were great opportunities. And obviously that came about because, you know, John saw us at gigs and he had obviously he had played the record even before we were on Blast first. Um, but no, that was great. And, and to also, me, that was a high point. You know? And also you, the producer, one of them for one of those sessions was the drummer for Mott the Hoople, Dale Griffin. Yeah. So did you did you have a good experience with Dale? Because I know quite a few people, you know, some said yes, that was great. And others said Yeah, no. I mean, I think I, I only have the vaguest memory of it. I mean, I think it was a bit perfunctory or something. I'm not sure if he really got us or whatever. I did mention him that I'd seen him, you know, headlining with the New York Dolls and and Aerosmith in Buffalo, New York in 1973, and I don't think he remembered. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's um, kind of weird because obviously, you know, he got a very good gig with, you know, being a producer and, yeah, and, and yeah. sort of kept his kind of career in some ways going within the industry. But I know a lot of people said, no, he was quite grumpy. And he, we and often people say, yeah, he didn't really get us. And I think, yeah, you shouldn't have been, a, you know, if you're a producer of a John Peel show, you're going to play some really odd, you know, you're going to have a lot of odd bands. Yeah, you've you? got to be really <laughs> open-minded. Yeah, I mean, I I think, like I said, I think, you know, he sort of just, he sort of approached it as a job at a certain point. He's sort of just doing it. I don't have, I have heard all these stories about people saying, oh God, he was the worst or whatever. But, you know, I, I, I have a more of a neutral, a neutral memory of it. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it's always strange when, you know, you're, you're doing something as intense as recording something and you're working with someone who's a stranger and a stranger to your music. Yes, um, you know, so it's 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 a, that's always a little nerve wracking. Yeah, um, you know, which is one of the reasons that we, you know, once we found certain engineers we really like, we would, you know, we would work with them again because you're not you're not having to go through, you know, earn their trust or impress them or whatever. Like they know what you're about, and you know, it's it's you sort of short circuit that weird first date kind of anxiety. Yes, well, I guess I, I suppose everyone has that moment where you have a producer that you've heard about. I mean, Steve Albini was one of those ones, wasn't he? And, right. Uh, was it, who's the guy from Bongwater? Was it Kramer? Yeah. Oh, Kramer, yeah, sure, Mark Kramer, yeah. Yes, I mean, you know, there, there were certain names, weren't there? Glenn Johns as well. And yeah, yeah. Sort of, you know, that come with a certain, you know, kudos really, isn't it? So, um, yeah, it's interesting. So, look, when you were coming to your fifth album, Here Comes Success, which with your, you know, just... I wasn't going to... Yeah, so you, the cover, because you mentioned P. Orange, didn't you? And and they did an album which was some kind of real, 
you know, like they were all dressed in a really straight way and it was kind of, was it called a jazz album or something, hoping that people would pick it up in Woolworths. And be oh, yeah, the jazz greats or whatever it was. Yeah, that was very funny. I yeah. just was wondering, did you, when you were doing your cover for, for Here Comes Success, did you have a little bit of a thing about, oh, that won't really confuse people who might just pick this well, up? Well, yeah, you know, the thing about Here Comes Success is that, well, there's two things. I mean, the... The, the 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 record is sort of I mean, the title is sort of a pun, you know, because we figured it was going to be our last record. But, you know, it's based on the Iggy Pop song Success, you know, which the chorus is here comes success. And the second line is here comes my car, here comes my Chinese rug. So on the front, we have a car and on the back we have an, you know, Asian rug. And the funny thing is that I um, I was obsessed with this particular model car, this obscure Rambler Marlin, which was a total failure of a car, but I just thought it was sort of hilarious. It was sort of an oxymoron to have like a Rambler sports car. It's like having like a Rover sports car or something, you know. And um, But I actually showed the record to Iggy at some point. I showed him the CD and I said, hey, you know, check this out. Here comes success. Here comes my car. Here comes my Chinese rug. And he thought it was—he thought it was hilarious, you know, that we had <laughs> done that. And also, we thought it was, you know, besides the besides the Iggy Pop reference and, and with the car and the rug, it was just sort of like here. It, it was sort of like us resigning ourselves to, you know, we're never going to be as successful as a lot of other of our, you know, contemporaries and colleagues, but you know. It's it's success for us, you know. So yes, you know, it was it was sort of it was definitely sort of a tongue in cheek thing, um, and you know, it it just all worked on it worked on a number of levels for us. Absolutely. Um, so so when you went in to do this album, was it a feeling between you, spoken or unspoken, that this is probably going to be the last one? And if that was the case, did it feel like a better experience by going? to enter the, that process being in, in that kind of emotional state? Well, I think, I mean, I seem to recall that we were fairly sure that it was going to be our last record and that we we really couldn't sustain the touring due to all those, all those other things I mentioned. And Susan had moved, I think she had moved to London at that point um, and, you know, was living with, with Paul Smith. And I think that we just kind of thought we've sort of done our thing and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to get signed to some big label and like make lots of money or have, you know, be able to quit our day jobs. And but the good thing about that record um, was, you know, I, we decided to do some longer tracks, some more instrumental tracks and stuff. But I think the band was somewhat fragmented at that point, um, just because people were really busy with their own lives. So, I mean, I it was probably less of a group effort than than some of the other ones. See the thing about the band Susan's was that it was a, it was actually more similar to something like Reese Chatham or Glenn Branca than it was to your classic rock band. Like we didn't write songs by jamming, like maybe the way Sonic Youth might. I really composed the stuff, and suit or Susan and I composed the stuff, and you know there were very defined parts. And even though you know, it might sound simple. There was a, a lot of precision in the composition, layering these three different guitar parts. And so basically I would write the stuff or Susan would write something and then we would sort of teach it to the band and they would basically learn the material and then they would add their own slant to it. But it was it was primarily sort of an orchestral kind of approach, which is something that a lot of people don't 
don't necessarily understand because the classic rock band is, you know, somebody comes with an idea and the band fleshes it out and then, you know, you have a song. This was much more compositional um, and remained that way, you know, to, to the very end. Um, although Susan, Susan Stenger's uh, involvement in the composition grew steadily from the, from the second record on. Um, but yeah, I think, I think when that, when we were doing that record and I think I spent some time, I remember spending some time in Amsterdam. I spent a month at this sort of electronic music Institute, sort of camping out, trying to work on material. I think we were also just a bit tired. You know, I think we were, we were a bit tired of the, the kind of touring we were doing, um, how grueling it was, um, sort of urban camping in the U S a little bit better in Europe um, because we had, you know, they would supply the hotel. Um, and, you know, it was, it was the band had been together, what, you know, nine years approximately, which to me is a long time. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I think that, so, you know, I mean, I think it was, it was the right point to stop. Um, and interestingly enough, that record, you know, got just as much or more critical response as our other records. I mean, we got incredible press for all our records, you know, just everything from Rolling Stone magazine to like butt rag fanzine, you know, and the British music papers and, you know, People magazine and the New York Times. And, and you know, so we were really lucky that that press didn't always translate to record sales. It did translate very well to college radio play, which was the, the big thing in the U.S. was, you know, these college radio stations. Um, but yeah, I think we were, we were ready to have that be our last record. Yes. I'm, and I'm, I don't recall exactly how much that informed the making of it, but I do think that we were, we were aware of that. Yes. Which is sometimes, you know, the best way to, to do it because God, it can end so badly if you're not careful. <laughs> yeah. It's not good because actually, I mean, and was Paul, I mean, there are a few characters who are just kind of amazing figures in music, you know, Tony Wilson, you know, yeah. Malcolm McLaren and, and Paul, you know, was one of those ones, a bit like the guy who was, I'm not going to remember his name, postcard records guy from Scotland who, um, mm, who, yeah, who was, who was a young, name, he was yeah. a very young kid. He did all this stuff and then kind of disappears. And no one's ever heard of him since. So, I mean, what was Paul like? Cause he must've been, absolutely driven and taken huge risks. Yeah, and... Paul was Paul was incredible. I mean, Paul really made Sonic Youth's career. I mean, he brought them to to the UK and they did the ICA and he he did so much for them and he's actually done <laughs> the funny thing about Paul is he tends to get really involved in bands and like kills himself to help them in their careers and then they tend to sort of turn around and decide that they did it all themselves. Um, which is, I think, probably the heartbreak for him. Although he's sort of philosophical. He says, well, that's the way they are, and he goes on. But, I mean, all these bands, for instance, you know, what he did with the Mekons was incredible, and how he, he helped out Wire when they were starting to tour again, and um, Afghan Wigs, and all these different bands. And um, so we, you know, we owe an incredible debt to him. And he's a really funny guy. He's super brilliant. And he's super quirky. He listens to, you know, he's an incredibly wide knowledge of music and film and literature. Um, and yet he's super down to earth. Um, and, you know, he was sort of a revela revelation. He became a very good friend of, of ours and Susan ended up marrying him. 
Um, and they live now primarily in Ireland, but they also live in London. And I'm still very close to them. Um, and Susan Stenger remains my best friend. And um, But he was incredible. He would see opportunities and ideas and ways to, you know, combine things or different bills or different, even, you know, get a different artist involved or a graphic designer or something. He, he really, you know, was an incredible figure. I mean, I think he's a controversial figure. Some people don't like him, you know, some people have weird grudges, but I mean, he did so much for so many bands um, and, you know, really was just a major, a major figure. Yes, I hope, um, you know, I mean, to be honest, I, I only know, know the label more than, I don't really know him. As just a fan, you know, just realise he just liked yeah. a lot of those bands. Oh, people who put labels together and did their thing. I mean, but he did it much better than or much more successful than a lot of the indie labels that happened in the yeah. 80s, even though they were still fantastic, you know, and and, yeah. and, and, and deserve to be credited. It's just a shame that there doesn't seem so much about Blouse first as there are sort of a few other sort of like, yeah. even Sarah, Sarah Records have got books and films about the label and all the bands that are on it. So it's, um, I hope... I hope someday there'll be a nice documentary yeah, about his yeah, life because, yeah, yeah. frankly, mm-hmm. people who, when you when you've got the baton in life, it's a lot harder than when you're at the at the bar. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you you know you're the one having the sleepless nights, worrying if this is going to gamble and happen. And you know it's easy to be on the sidelines saying, "Oh, that was easy," or "That was bad." Oh, well, you should have done this. It's like God me. Oh yeah. <laughs> so look, then you're just you know your solo career. I mean, how did it feel when you sort of thought, right? that's that kind of chapter is over even though you it's kind of yeah a... i mean it you know it took some time i mean the the you know i did a couple short-term collaborations here and there um after the band of susans but my first real solo cd came out in 2002 so that was like you know half a dozen years after um after the band broke up and um you know i was doing I was doing some different collaborations with other musicians and people and continuing to work with Susan um, on some projects, installations and things. And I got very involved in modular synthesizers, which I hadn't used at all since I had, was at university, like in the mid 70s. But this was before the big, you know, the big wave in the last few years of everyone having these modular synths. But I was sort of rediscovering electronic music and pure electronic music and sort of more drone stuff. Um, I wasn't interested in trying to, as a solo person, just do a band of Susans-esque thing. And also the big, a big change for me in the, you know, starting in the um, 2000s, whatever, was I started doing music for dance and music for film. And that was an incredibly great outlet. And I worked with three different choreographers um, uh, Alexandra Beller and um, and um, God, I'm spacing out. Oh, this Michael term. Clark. I did I actually did Susan work with Michael Clark. I did not, although I I helped on one project. Oh. Um, <laughs> Sally Gross was in, was another one. Um, so doing music for dance was great because I was able to sort of do stuff with it was more sort of atmospheric and ethereal and evocative. Um, and wasn't tied so much to the sort of pop song format. So, I mean, I think that the music they're doing, working with choreographers and, and, a, few, and a few things for film really informs the, you know, my, my four solo records. 
Um, and I was also doing some live solo performances with guitar and electronics and, you know, various processing. Um, so some of the stuff on my solo records are actually live live recordings um, from, you know, different clubs in New York. I also was working more closely with Phil Niblock, um, playing his music and also engineering some records for him. Um, so, you know, my solo records in comparison to the Band of Susan stuff, they're more eclectic and they do have a range of stuff from more or less rock songs to more abstract um, soundscapes. Yeah. And that's sort of where I am now. I mean, I, I, I kind of thought at some point I would try to do a real band of Susan's esque, you know, record, but I sort of feel I really did that really as successfully as I probably could. And I'm not sure if I need to revisit that. I mean, but the funny thing is that Susan Singer always tells me you have nothing to prove. Like, don't you've done, you've done all these records, you've done all these solo things, you've done these concerts, you know, you have nothing to prove. And I think I still feel like I have something to prove, which is probably silly because, you know, maybe I had my 10 years or my 12 years or whatever. Um, so who knows? I, I get asked now these days to collaborate on short-term projects or compilations or benefits, fundraising things. And, you know, people approach me and it's great. You know, it's, it's fun doing something for a specific project. Unfortunately, I'm no longer working with the dance companies because the, my main dance company, Alexandra Beller's company, sort of had to dissolve just, you know, with lack of funding and stuff. And I miss that. I miss that collaboration with, you know, I do work with a visual artist named Margaret Vibmer, who's great. So I've been doing some sound installation work for her art and her film. And I actually really treasure these these short-term collaborations. You know, they, it's like, I have, it's like an assignment, you know, it's trying to, I try to work with the choreographer or the, the artist and, you know, I try to give them something that works for them. Um, and it's, it's fun to have that as an assignment. Yes. And coming to the current day, and I was thinking about this quite recently, quite very recently because of the current situation. Um, I mean, as an artist, do you sort of feel like yeah, I was thinking if you're if you're halfway through writing a novel at the moment or doing something, this would really make you think. Oh my God! Actually, this is such a game changer. I just wondered how that's kind of affecting your creativity. I mean, it's just such a yeah. It's it's sort of a paradox because I'm up here in near Boston and I have a computer and I have a couple of guitars. I mean, all my main equipment was left in New York and all my synthesizer stuff. But but I have enough here to to make music and to record music. And so I'm very lucky in that regard. You know, I'm somehow not that inspired at the moment. I think there's this weird feeling that even if you're not in the midst of this whole virus thing, there's always this weird feeling that everyone is sort of ill or you're, or that somehow you're, everyone is, is in this sort of suspended animation, this sort of waiting period. So, I haven't felt the urge, even though I have some time in my hands now, I haven't felt the urge to get back to writing more stuff. And again, I always refer back to Susan, who's, you know, sort of my guru. And she says, don't, you know, don't stress it. Like if you want to spend your time reading spy novels and, you know, watching, you know, Netflix, do it. Like, I guess it's always been that way for me is that I, I work best when I'm inspired Yeah. and you can't, you can't force inspiration, at least I can't. Um, 
So, you know, maybe I just need to make myself a couple drinks and, you know, plug in all my distortion boxes and just start recording, not think about it too much. Um, but it is, I, you know, and I have a lot of friends, you know, a lot of composers and musicians and colleagues that I'm in touch with through the internet, through Facebook and other things. And some people are saying, oh yeah, this is a great time. I'm not working and I'm, I'm really immersed in my music. And other people are saying like, I'm too distracted. I'm too worried. I'm too just, you know, befuddled by this strange turn of events that it's hard to focus. And I guess, I guess that would apply to me at the moment. I'm having trouble sort of focusing on, you know, I watch too much news. I follow politics too closely and we have such a, um, you know, we have this, I know you have your own problems in, in the UK, but we have this, narcissistic socio sociopathic moron you know we're, you know is the president and he's just so infuriating and so you know a disgusting racist misogynist you know just he sort of represents everything that's bad in the world and yet he's there sort of running things so i get a little too wound up with that stuff and uh well absolutely I should, Yes, you know, I know. It's probably easy. ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We try and sort of limit our news intake, but it is kind of yeah. it is quite tricky. I think most people have resorted. I don't think many people are the creativity thing. is kind of interesting because you probably see all these artists who are sort of performing in their living rooms at the moment. But I sort of right, think, yeah. I think the one thing I've noticed is that a lot of people have been going through their files and their memorabilia boxes and pulling out stuff that they haven't yeah. haven't done yeah. for thirty years, which I find quite sweet. So um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of archiving and uh, archival uh, <laughs> reorganization. I know Susan's doing that in Ireland. And, yes, um, absolutely. And I, I yeah, I mean I can't do that because I'm away from all my stuff which is in new york city but but yeah there's a lot of that going on there's a lot of you know reconsideration of things and you know it's it's interesting it's not a bad thing you know the disease aside it's it's not a bad thing to be suddenly be forced into a new world of limitations um and you know suddenly people can't go out and perform or you know can't go to the recording studio you know it's it's a real negative for in a lot of respects but I think it also is is forcing people to reevaluate their own, you know, their own careers, like you say, and their own, you know, histories and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, just and just one last question. What would you I mean, just kind of always curious on this. What would you have said to your your 18 year old self kind of? starting out i know it's probably a bit of a cliche but but that that thing of <laughs> that's just... a very good you know what <laughs> the funny thing i've thought about this a lot oh good and 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 the funny thing is well there there's a couple of things i have to give you somewhat of a complex answer i find the people that i admire most in the world the the artists i admire are writers are novelists i mean what writers do with just some words on a page, the way that you can be transported to a different time and place or a different mood. I mean, I am in awe of writers and I, I've tried doing some writing. I mean, my, what I would have told my 18 year old self is like study writing, study creative writing, like do, do writing, you know, you can play music on the side, but you know, your real talent is going to be in this, in the written word. Now, at 18, I had nowhere near the self-confidence or the necessarily the skills to have been a writer, you know. Um, 
But I guess in terms of music, what I would have told my 18-year-old self, because then I was probably playing covers, I would probably have just said, don't listen to, don't listen to anyone tell you what you should or you should not do musically. Just even if it's the smallest bit, find something that you can call your own and just pursue it to the ends of the earth. You know, find your your sound or your your style or something um, and just just pursue it. Because I think that early on and, you know, as a teenager in my early 20s, I was I was doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And I didn't have the self-confidence um, to just do what I really wanted to do. Um, I just I just was I had to go through a sort of a long process to to reach that point where I had the self-confidence and the inspiration to make something that was really mine. Up until then, I was doing stuff, like I said, that was just very, very derivative. Now, some people need to go through this derivative stage and some people don't, you know. Um, I was someone who, who had to go through it and I sort of took the long way around. Um, I guess I would have told my 18-year-old self, try to find a way to not take the long way, like get right at it, you know, get get right at the, you know, sort of weird um, idiosyncrasies of your own style. Yes, it's kind of tricky, though, isn't it? Because it's because what, you know, like I mentioned very, you know, earlier, but one of my heroes being David Bowen, I sort of look back at his 60s work and think, wow, that is that's very odd. I mean, who would have bought yeah. it? I mean, you had you mentioned all those bands in the 60s and then David was doing this little weird stuff that, you know, frankly would have, I mean, who would have bought it? But I am, <laughs> it always boggles me. And then, you know, but he keeps going and then he hits, you know, like he gets Angie, Sigmore, um, Stein, no, Tony DeFries, you know, yeah. they, they suddenly, you know, click something. But my God, he had to spend five years kind of... No, doing, that's true, yeah. So it, it's kind of weird. But then, you know, he worked with Lindsay Kemp. He did all this other stuff. Very interested in, again, the incredible string band, you know, really not focused at all. Anthony Newley kind of. Exactly. Weird, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. Kind of, People, he didn't just, you know, he didn't just like, you know, spring from the world of Ziggy Stardust. I mean, he went through a lot of different, you know, sort of incarnations in different styles and before he sort of found who he was. Yes. Um, it's, it's quite interesting, yes. It is quite, yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, it, is, it does make me laugh when I listen to the 60s, because we only listen to it because it's David Bowie. Exactly, but, right. But, yeah, you know, yeah. if you'd listen to this, anybody else, if someone said, oh, listen to this being made in the 60s, you think, wow, I think I'll go and listen to Jimi Hendrix now, or the, right, or yeah. the Doors, or <laughs> Jefferson Airplane, you know. Yeah. I could have, you know, even, I don't know. But, um, yeah, even the musical of The Sound of Music, but, you know, he was he was doing this very strange stuff. So, But, again, you know, it's interesting, because he was probably, I don't know, 25 when he hit Ziggy. You know, Blondie was probably, Debbie Harry was probably 30, you know, and it was kind of interesting right. that, yeah. you know, it's, it is kind of... It, it's not. It's not like the X factor now, where like, oh my God, you're you're almost twenty. You've passed it. I mean, in those days, people did you know chug chug away, didn't they, for a bit longer? Some did and some didn't. I mean, you know, some some you know formed their first band, you know, and it was you know it was it was just a blast, and they were eighteen or nineteen or twenty. Other people, you know, came along later. I mean, I always think of myself as sort of a late bloomer. Um, you know, in a strange way, but that's just the way it worked for me. Like I had to, I had to go through a lot of different things. And like, again, I keep going back to sort of self-confidence. I, I had to, 
at some point discover that I should just do what I wanted to do and not think about um, the consequences or the con or the context um, or the ramifications. And that some people can do that when they're 19. I couldn't, you know. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, you mentioned the sex business. I think the stars, everything lined up for them, you know, just right. at that perfect time. But then I, I spoke to a guy called Richard Strange, who was in The Doctors of Madness, who, mm -hmm. who, yeah. who said, you know, we were two years too early for punk. You know, we were there. Right. We, we were just like in 75. And so all those people like Johnny Rotten and everybody came to see us, got the a lot of ideas from us. And by the time that, you know, punk happened, he, he was like, oh, my God, I'm I'm probably in my late, oh, I don't know, mid or late 20s. I've, I've kind of missed it. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, it's interesting. Know. The timing is very interesting. I mean, I've always thought that Band of Susans was sort of ahead of our time because the people people now or in the last 10 or 20 years are much more receptive to some of the minimalist ideas we had in some of the the sort of drone stuff and. And also the connection with people like Phil Niblock and Lamont Young and stuff and Reese Chatham. So, yeah, it's that, that whole timing thing. But I can totally see that, you know, being two years too early, two years too late, you know, being in the wrong place. I mean, it's, yeah, sometimes, like you say, sometimes the stars align and it just happens. And sometimes it doesn't. Yes, but you still got a phenomenal catalogue. <laughs> it's just a great catalogue. And work with, you know... Paul and 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 Blast Furs, which was yeah, just that was amazing, great. you know, brilliant. And that was my interview with Robert Poss from the Band of Susans. Thank you ever so much for listening, and a huge thank you to Robert for giving me his time for that interview, and um, hugely appreciated. If you want to contact me, you can on. Um, yes, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86Show. Yep, it will come through to me. Keep it positive. Otherwise, don't bother. And um, all, all just creative, who knows? And um, yes, all these shows have been archived. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86Show, all one word. Well, one letter and two two numbers, really. Um it will be there. Anyway, this has been David Esau, C86 Show. Have a great week. Stay safe.